0: My name is Dr. Jessica Terhar and I'm really pleased to be joining Neil on this podcast. I come from the probiotic industry. I'm an independent scientist and consultant. I have a number of clients that are working in the microbiome and probiotic space and I'm also the scientific director for the International Probiotic Association. My expertise is really within women's health but also formulating product development, helping companies go to market in terms of meeting regulatory requirements and so on and I'm on the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. My biggest pet peeve with the probiotic industry is the misinterpretation or misunderstanding or confusion of probiotic science. There is so much really great high-quality science that backs up the industry, and of course there's quite some crap, but we're not proud enough of the good science that we have, and that science tends to be misunderstood, and I think that's because it is so complex. We're dealing with live organisms that have a mind of their own, they replicate on their own, they respond to their environment, they interact with their environment. These are not small molecules that have a certain shape configuration that never changes, that go to a receptor, that activate a target in an end organ tissue, and so on. So I think that's probably my biggest pet peeve is the lack of understanding sometimes of the science and then the miscommunication and confusion that ensue.
1: Calling out the myths, misinformation, and BS in the wellness industry. This is the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. Here's your host, holistic pharmacist, supplement expert, Big Mouth, Dr. Neil Smoller. Broadcasting from the belly of rock and roll history, Woodstock, New York. That was a very clever pun since we're talking probiotics today. Today's feature conversation is with Dr. Jessica Tarhar, probiotic and microbiome consultant. And we're talking probiotics for beginners. Afterwards, though, I have a little Q and A session, and it's about prebiotics. One of my patients emailed me, asked me a couple of questions. I'm going to talk about it on the podcast because she's a loyal listener and a writer and reader and all of that fun stuff. And I, I thought it's relevant to the conversation. So, you know, what do you want me to do here, people? What the heck? So, how's your week been? My house is filled with sick children because it's the you know the time of the year for that fun stuff: barky cough, upper respiratory track infections. I've got every vaporizer running and Benadryl's flowing. It's just a very moist coffee house, you know, just like that kind of a thing. So besides the coughing though, it is like a little quieter. When you have four children, it's always very physically loud with people just kind of being everywhere and running around. So it's a bit more subdued, which is nice. And we don't have the noise that that brings. You know, cough is a hot topic right now. So if you're dealing with colds or coughs, check out woodstockvitamins.com cold, not for the newest cold cuts like ham and prosciutto, but for my article on cold prevention and management. So let's get right into it here. I'm excited to share my chat with Dr. Jessica Terhar, PhD. She's a a consultant specialized in women's health, probiotic development, and scientific intelligence. So we get along real well, even though I lack the intelligence side of the conversation. She helps companies develop proper quality probiotic products using sound science. Uh, Dr. Tarhar is very, 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 very passionate about quality probiotic information. She is also right now the scientific director for International Probiotics Association and has been since about mid-2018. So here's the great Dr. Terhar and she's teaching me a thing or two about probiotics. Enjoy. One of the things that I always have difficulty explaining to people is how difficult it is to purchase a probiotic. I don't feel like there's one simple like rubber stamp. This is what you buy. Uh, Like other stuff, fish oil, even botanicals or mushrooms, there's a very clear like, hey, this is the two things that you're looking for. But I feel like probiotics are a much more complex space. What What do you feel about that?
0: They're definitely a complex space, Neil, and there's a lot that goes into um, a high quality evidence-based efficacious probiotic and differentiating that on a label, whether it's for a consumer or a healthcare professional is also challenging. And I think that sort of stems not actually from the science, but from the regulations, because in different countries in the world, let's take the US as an example, um, you are allowed to say certain things on the label, but you're also not allowed to say certain things on the label. And I mean, we're humans, we're visual creatures, right? We uh, we look at things, we interpret them, and, and and if there's not the information that we need, which bug can I take for which indication or how much should I be taking it with or can I take it with this drug or this um, supplement? Will it interact there? You know, that information often is not on the labels in the U.S., obviously because of the, the claim status from the regulate, regulatory aspect. So I think that's, that's a big challenge um, and something that, I don't know that will be overcome in the next few years, perhaps, but um, it's it's definitely confusing. There are guides out there, though, to help um, recognize, for example, a high quality label. I mean, sure. it should um, include the the number of live microorganisms, so the CFU count, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the weight um, of the product, because these are live bugs. You want. Mm-hmm live organisms?
1: Do you want to hear my analogy for that? I have bad analogies that I try to teach people with. It's like saying that, uh, we're trying to judge the number of people in a hospital by the total count of the bodies in a hospital, but there's a whole floor (laughs) that's a morgue. So, you know, so that's, that's that's close as I can get for a good analogy on CFU versus weight, but, uh, yeah, Uh, that's, that's as close as I can get. Yeah. Um, so you know, let's define for people what exactly a probiotic is versus things that are marketed as probiotics that aren't really probiotics.
0: Thank you so much for bringing that up because this is perhaps this is one of my second pet peeves <laughs> <laughs> regarding probiotics.
1: I bring that out in people; uh, all of their pet peeves come to the surface.
0: It's a good thing. <laughs> so, when we talk about a probiotic, a probiotic mattress doesn't exist. A probiotic cleaner <laughs> doesn't exist probiotic chocolate probably doesn't exist. Why? If we look at the definition of probiotics, and I'm going to spell it out and forgive me for being all nerdy here, but the WHO, the World Health Organization in 2001, has defined probiotics as live microorganisms. So emphasize the live aspect that when given in or administered in adequate amounts confer a health benefit on the host. And this definition has been confirmed and reaffirmed and, and ratified by a number of expert scientists and also later on in a couple of consensus papers. So these live microorganisms, when they're administered in adequate amounts, that implies a sufficient dose for the said benefit. And that's really where a lot of these foo foo products come on the market. So Let's say you're looking into a probiotic cleaner. What's the purpose of it? What's the health benefit of it? You may say, okay, it's a probiotic. It's good for my health. But what has been demonstrated in terms of evidence? And what's the amount you need to get of that probiotic in your cleaner to achieve that health benefit? And by extension, is it going to be alive when you get it? And what is it doing? I mean, we don't inhale. Well, I, I don't inhale or eat my cleaners. Um, when I'm cleaning my house,
1: some people blame that for most of my problems. Uh, eating too many uh, bottles of Windex. So, oh, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> my big fat Creek wedding is a family favorite show. So
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there you go, Windex.
0: But I mean, coming back to that, it, it's it's not to say that products like a probiotic mattress or 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 a cleaner cannot be beneficial, but they're not probiotics. Yeah, a probiotic has to be defined. It has to be studied, and it has to um, confer a health benefit. So. Let's look at food supplements um, or probiotic chocolate, for example, is another one. Yeah, uh, You need a, a certain amount. Let's say you're taking an organism, I don't know, lactobacillus, rhamnosus LGG. Mm-hmm. So that's a fairly common, um, well-studied, probably one of the best-studied probiotic strains on the market.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And if you throw some of that in chocolate and people call it a probiotic or in ice cream or in, in, in baked muffins, I don't know, whatever, you know, people throw probiotic on the label, but... That is an organism that has quite a a large amount of data backing it for multiple health benefits. But is it alive when it's in the chocolate or in the muffin or in whatever it is? Um, Is it in the right amounts that have been shown in the studies? You know, is it actually going to get where it's supposed to go? Is it destroyed during the the, the manufacturing process or the the production process? So just describing sort of what a probiotic is not – can take us down quite a big rabbit hole. Fermented foods, traditionally fermented foods, are not probiotics. They're not defined. They're not um, usually they're not in adequate amounts in terms of the the proper organisms. Um, fecal microbial transplant is not a probiotic. It's it's an undefined microbial consortia,
2: right
0: strains that are microbial strains that are not documented to have health benefits. They might be beneficial organisms because you know they've been around in the food supply or, or you know they're they're non virulent, but If they don't have a documented health benefit, we would call them a candidate probiotic. But until they have a documented health benefit, they're not a probiotic. Dead, heat-killed microorganisms, they're not probiotics because they're not alive.
1: The idea that these things are labeled probiotic, it's like they should just be labeled with bacteria, which then, (laughs) how many people would buy these things if it just said like, chocolate with bacteria
2: bacterial <laughs> the um, cleaners
1: <laughs> bacterial laden cleaners
2: why on earth <laughs>
1: um so specifically like a lot of people say to me you know kombucha 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 can we talk about kombucha just as a even from a plus bacteria like what kinds of strains actually end up being in there what kinds of strains so, uh- survive that mess
0: Often in kombucha, you have strains that are either from traditional ferments or you have a a starter culture that people use. And I mean, depending on the moral ethics of the company and how they approach their products, I think it varies. But, you know, really the strains that are there often serve either technological or flavor purposes. Right. So you want to develop a certain flavor profile and depending on you know, what you're starting with your kombucha, whether it's you know, just a straight up you know, sugar, ginger, lemon kind of concoction versus something a bit more exotic. I've seen these are pretty cool stuff for kombucha, yeah. but these are not probiotics. And the strains that are selected are really usually for those two purposes. So um, creating that really, really fizzy, awesome mouthfeel, so to say. And that comes with high, high amounts of fermentation. So really robust, high-growing, straight, like fast-growing strains that'll um, survive in a very acidic environment and so on and, and that can be a range of, of all sorts of organisms or they want things to really either digest the sugars or the food that's in there for the bacteria and really enhance the flavor profile so in some companies I've seen that there is quite a bit of well not quite a bit but there is quite some R&D that goes into um, looking at what the flavor profiles will be that tends to be more from the manufacturer's side for the starter cultures, unless you're doing a wild ferment and then you know hopefully you hit a good jackpot. But again, those are undefined and they tend to serve those two purposes.
1: I have a bone to pick. I know we're going to try to keep it like academic and talk about the, the class itself, the, but the, you know, bacillus coagulans is what's found in a lot of these food Based strains. So, if you go to a smoothie place and they say, "Oh, it's got probiotics in it," it's it's Bacillus bacteria, which are soil-based bacteria. Now, there's a doctor internet face. He's he's promoting soil bacteria as like the new breakthrough. And while I can kind of respect the idea that yes, soil bacteria are going to be a part of our microbiome to some degree, uh, and I'm sure that there are specific strains out there that may have some data that confers a health benefit. I just kind of think of them as cockroaches. And I think we just have too many good options for human strains of of probiotics to then get into the soil bacteria. So can you talk to soil bacteria, the idea of bacillus strains and and like, should we be worried about them or are, is it just a gimmick? Like, can you talk to that?
0: Yeah, certainly. Um, I think there we have to also look at both sides because you're approaching it from a, an actually a, a rather slanted philosophical or scientific approach. You're, mm-hmm. you're making the assumption already that we have to take strains that are isolated from humans. Mm-hmm. If you look at the other side, where did we get those strains? Go back to the first person or the first depending on what you, would sort of start of the world um, approach you, you adhere to. Mm-hmm. We either came from bacteria or monkeys or something else mm-hmm. or we were created or, Just you know, the whatever.
1: flying spaghetti monster, yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, exactly. So however <laughs> that happened, we came into contact with them mm-hmm. and we started to evolve with them. Now, if you look at microbial ecology and evolution, um, all of the evidence to date seems to point to the fact that we acquired our strains from our environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and ergo, you know, from mom and from dad and from the dog and from, you know, the nowadays, the air conditioning unit, etc. Yep. But the point is, is there's, there's an, a complex interaction with our environment and our bacteria and certain strains over generations have evolved to be more adapted to living with humans.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like the bacillus, the genus is an example of that. Bifidobacteria is another example. Um, streptococci, uh, staphylococcus, you know, all of those things. On different parts of our skin and our gut um, in in the urogenital tract etc. So when we think about where our strains came from they actually probably also came from the soil. Mm -hmm. I mean if you eat an apple a raw apple there's bacteria on the skin there's bacteria in the seeds there's bacteria in the apple flesh itself probably I think it's I think some people have actually calculated this and measured it um, using different research techniques to be about 10 to the 9 so almost a billion or 10, yeah, almost a billion bacteria um, in a whole apple. Wow. So we we get food, uh, we get microbes from our food. We get microbes from our cash registers, from our mobile phones, from the door handles of the car. If you believe in earthing and you sort of are outside a lot, you know, you get organisms from the air. Every time you and I breathe in and out, we exchange organisms. So the idea that we are in a constant sort of state of flux, but our body has these natural barriers to ensure that the bad guys, the virulent guys don't get in and cause this, you know, big chaotic mess. That has to be taken into account in this discussion. Mm -hmm. So when we speak about soil organisms, as long as they're not virulent, then I don't per se see a problem based on the evidence. Mm -hmm. Now, if you talk about, for example, well, people think about tetanus all the time, right? Sure. You know, you cut yourself... You are concerned that it was a rusty uh, nail or axe or whatever you're working with, and you know, you got your tetanus shot, so you think you're good to go. Just make sure, go check up, keep the wound clean. But the tetanus bacteria is not a problem unless it's growing in an anaerobic environment. So in other words, that's why you're supposed to, you know, keep the wound open, keep it clean, et cetera, so it doesn't start producing its toxin, right? But that's an example of an, an organism that can adapt to be pathogenic in the right environment. And all bacteria have this capacity, even the good ones that have adapted from in our bodies over those generations. So, when we say it should be a human isolate, I would actually, as opposed to a soil isolate, I would say it needs to be an evidence based isolate. Right. So, it's been shown not to be virulent, um, not to cause different um, uh, dangerous things like uh, transfer of antibiotic resistance. Um, you know, uh, we do a lot of tests on hemolytic capacity and things like that, um, that it doesn't have toxin producing uh, genetic elements and so on and so forth. That, that's what I would be more concerned about as opposed to, is it from isolated from mother's breast milk compared to, you know, Earth, my backyard right. garden. Mm-hmm. But again, that's, that's the approach that I take based on the science.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I know for some areas that might be a little bit more challenging, but that's why we have exciting new candidate probiotic strains like Ackermansia, who is a mucus degrader. We have um, all sorts of next-generation probiotics, people call them, that haven't yet come to market for a number of reasons. But just to circle back, to answer your question, I would try to go more for an evidence-based, a quality, um, verified, safe organism, as opposed to whether it's from a a human isolate or a a soil isolate.
1: Right. Great. And... So you just said what I tend to say just more intelligently, I think, probably. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the, uh, let's use this kind of as a segue into the conversation around quality because I just want to double down here because bacillus strains obviously are a pet peeve of mine because I just feel like it's a marketing gimmick at this point that they're using all of this idea. They're promoting more the idea that it comes from the environment, and that's what makes it better, that natural fallacy. And and then they're promoting this product. But when they make the product, they're not doing everything that they're responsible to do, which is label the substrain. So which specific strain of bacilli- uh, bacillus coagulans is it, right? What um, They're not labeling the specific amounts. They're using um, uh, proprietary blends right? Yeah. Um, so let's kind of talk about things that people should be looking for on a label of a probiotic as like minimum competency to determine quality. And then we'll talk about like the data and all of that.
0: For sure. No, I, I would very much like to get into that. With <laughs> Wonderful. <well. laughs> so I'm glad you're
1: excited too. I'm excited.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mentioned something right off the bat and that was CFU versus that's um, right. Mm-hmm. Milligrams, exactly, and I think that's probably something you've you've discussed a couple of times as well, Neil. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's important to know that it's alive, um, and it's mm-hmm. also important to know that it's um, alive not at but best before manufacture, like time of manufacturing, but at the end of the shelf life. Right. So there are certain things on a label, as you correctly led into, that you can check a quality probiotic and strain designation absolutely is another one. Mm -hmm. You got to know exactly what organism is there for the healthcare professional that has a little bit more time during the lunch break or the more informed consumer that really wants to dig into the differences between products. You know, you need that information. It's like trying to say, okay, go find Neil. (laughs) Which Neil? Well, he's got some great podcasts. Okay. All I have to go on is Neil and podcasts. (laughs) Now, Let's hope that there's not too many Neils with podcasts out there, but I mean, how many billion people are in the world? And I mean,
1: I mean Dr. Tyson has one, Neil deGrasse Tyson, so he's got and his is way better than mine. So
0: oh you got competition then, see? <laughs> so I mean that's like trying to find, okay, go look for a lactobacillus acidophilus. Mm-hmm, Which right. one? It doesn't work that way. Um, it's not informing the consumer, it's not informing the healthcare professional, it's not informing anybody really. And of course you can take the more skeptical approach and perhaps that's the best approach, you know, guilty until proven innocent, so to say, but you have to be able to contact the manufacturer as well to find out that information, whether it's the brand themselves or maybe they put the manufacturer information. It really depends on the label itself, but you need to know what's in the product. You need to know the amounts that are in the product. You need to know, hopefully, as I said, the potency that links back to the studies as well. Because if you're taking a product for, I don't know, IBS, or IBD, some sort of ulcerative colitis, to get more specific, you want to know that that's been studied in an ulcerative colitis population and that there's a dose that's tied to that, and that's the dose that you should be taking because you fit that population of patients, mm-hmm. or that your patient, you want to recommend something that's really going to work for them, or at least the, the, the correct subset of patients. So this, this should, the label should be taking the guesswork out of it, and that's where the onus comes on the companies to really make a good label.
1: So on the idea of the specific strain names, one of the things that I've found is that they, the companies now are savvy, that people are savvy and looking for Mm -hmm. that three-letter initial or the number, and they're just making stuff up now. Like, how does a consumer know that um, you know HL seventeen is real, you know, versus some made-up thing like I literally just made up in my head to prove that it's a made-up thing? So we can teach people all day, Jessica, that you need to look for specific strains of probiotics and you need to have, make sure that you have the right dose of the CFU tied to the data. But like, Mm -hmm. how, how do we get to that point? Like what do we do for people to help them with that journey? You know,
0: as I said, the onus tends to be on the companies, unfortunately, fortunately, and usually in my experience, good companies will have good labels. So if you don't find a product and, I know there's a price difference often and that's a hard thing because probiotics are not reimbursed. They're not usually eligible unless you have like an HSA or something like that. You know, they're not usually subsidized in that sense. So they can get expensive.
1: Mm -hmm. But have you, have you come across any resources, I guess that lists out um, strain, you know, popular strain names uh, or anything like that? Or is that something I should start building?
0: (laughs) Oh, you can, you can try to build it, but I mean, there are, Couple of guides out there that focus on some evidence-based products, mm-hmm. uh, mostly on the strain names. So there's the clinical probiotic chart in the U.S. and in Canada. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that's been developed more for healthcare professionals than patients. But I mean, a patient obviously can use it um, if they're uh, able to put two brain cells together, which most of us are. Yes. It's not, it's not very complicated. No. Um, but I mean, I would just go back to the fact that if you if you have too many questions about a probiotic label, put yeah. the product back on the shelf. Yeah.
2: Find it's not one. worth.
1: It. Yeah, and don't buy these things off of. Uh, I always right. say, don't buy don't buy any supplements off of a review or a recommendation because the whole system's broken and it's a mess. And then everybody's making recommendations based on that, which is the silliest concept ever. You know, indeed.
0: And I mean, other things you want to look for in a label is the storage information. How the hell do you store it? Right. You want something that's dry. Oh, but I sh- it should be refrigerated. Well, don't store it the way it doesn't say to store it. Right. You know so that information should be there. You want to you know what the shelf life is. You know, and one of the things that I've said this a little bit before um, is you want to be able to contact the company. So there should be information, contact information as well on the label. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to, you know, the, the the serving size and should you take it with food and should you not take it with food and stuff like that. But yeah, if if that information, CFUs, we talked about the full name of the strain. So that's the genus, species and strain name. So Lactobacillus yep. uh, Rhamnosus GG, for example. You know, you want to know what it's hopefully what it's being used for. So, supports immune health or digestive health, something like that. You want to know the dosage or the the serving size, the amount you need um, to be consumed. You need to know how it's stored, um, used by a certain expiration date, etc. And also the company contact information. I mean, if a label doesn't contain those basic minimum things, put the product.
1: Yeah, that's that's one. That's a. A big red flag that it wouldn't contain any of those things at all. Yeah. And and the thing is, is like leading probiotics do lack one or more of those things, which is crazy to me. But that's the nature of our industry. And that's why I'm running my big mouth all the time. So, <laughs> the, <laughs> so the idea of colonization comes up as well. So we talk about um, the idea that, oh, ours actually colonizes or, you know, those kinds of conversations come up quite a bit. And there's a lot of like scientific media talking about why probiotics don't work is because they don't colonize. So I know that you have a specific uh, perception of this based on your expertise. So let's talk about that.
0: I'm a bit biased on this one, but again, trying to be a balanced scientist, my two brain cells are (laughs) fighting each other right now. Um, Trying to be a balanced scientist, if you look at both sides, this actually goes a little bit back to our previous philosophical discussion. Look at us science philosophy all in 20 minutes. My God, <laughs> you're poor listeners. Um, col- if you think of a colonization, um, this stems from the idea that we are replacing microbes that are missing. So the, the missing microbes hypothesis or the lost friends hypothesis, as we call it in the science. And there's nothing wrong with that hypothesis, but the evidence seems to be for probiotics pointing more to the fact that colonization is not A prerequisite for efficacy so in other words you don't need a probiotic to long-term permanently colonize the respective niche for it to work now that might be different in certain niches in the body if we take the gastrointestinal tract I'm fairly certain that a probiotic that you might take that contains I don't know 10 to the 9 maybe 10 to the 10 is a drop in the ocean compared to the number of organisms that you currently have in your gastrointestinal tract. We're talking, depending on where you are in the alimentary tract, um, 10 to the 9, 10 to the 11, 10 to the 14. Mm-hmm. This is a drop in the bucket. Right. So would we even be able to identify if it colonized? No, unlikely. We're able to identify the organisms that come out, but it's not a one-on-one, one-in, one-out kind of thing. Yeah. So, the evidence more points to transient colonization and functional colonization in the sense of let's make an effect, let's stick around for a little bit of time, and then we're just going to leave because we're trying to um, uh, stimulate uh, the the good guys to come back. We're not necessarily going to stay, but we want to also functionally promote their survival, their growth, their development to 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 reasonable numbers because really probiotics have a functional effect it's not a compositional effect um that's in the gastrointestinal tract if you look at um preterm infants for instance mm-hmm. there's a clear case where you possibly do want colonization for a certain period of time but again it's not permanent mm-hmm. we know that when preterm infants have necrotizing enterocolitis neck um they have a dysbiosis or a disbalance in the colonization of the gut. So feeding, for example, a, a lactobacillus reuteri or a bifidobacterium infantis, or you know, depending on which probiotic strain you are talking about, those strains tend to colonize a bit more long-term. But again, mm-hmm. they're not permanent. They're not for the rest of the life of the baby or the, the adult, etc., as they develop. So there's different phases that you can consider as well. In the urogenital tract, of course, everybody um, understands, I hope, that you want high amounts of lactobacillus mm-hmm. strains and subspecies and species, but you want a low diversity. So if a lactobacillus, uh, let's say uh Reuteri RC14 strain colonizes for a month or two months or three months, that's great. But it's likely not going to be there much longer after cessation of administration. So different niches, different approaches, but in general, my perspective based on the evidence I've seen is that colonization, permanent colonization, so for the rest of your life, you take a probiotic once, you're good to go. That's not a prerequisite for probiotic efficacy. And that's really a very strong point of confusion um, with respect to a lot of the studies that come out and a lot of the negative press that's been had in the last little while, maybe last year or so. FMT doesn't even colonize. Right. Microbiota, microbiota transplant doesn't colonize either. It's not permanent. And it would be actually strange if it was permanent. Because that would be that would, a problem. <laughs> we have not evolved. <laughs>
1: right. the, did you hear about the South Park episode that talked about fecal transplants?
0: I did not
1: as a little side. It was great. So this, uh, one of the moms got a fecal transplant because of some horrible condition or something like that. And she felt so much more energetic and they were really playing up the positive side. So that none of the doctors of the other women allowed it because they didn't have the indication for it, of course. So then they tried to steal her feces. Oh <laughs> That's God. the whole episode. <laughs> was, <laughs> oh,
2: it was
1: so good. Yeah. It, they've done really good stuff with vaccines too this year. But anyway, um, more on point, let's talk about probiotic efficacy just in general because I have so many people that they don't think that probiotics are something that we should be proactive about. It should be to address an issue or it should be something that we do um, to feel better. And if, it, if a probiotic doesn't make us feel better, it doesn't work. So let's talk about the concept of efficacy and like what we're really trying to get at and what a probiotic can really do for people, um, especially like the general population that that may not have digestive issues.
0: You got to define this a bit more for me. Forgive me. I'm going to be a nerd.
1: Yeah, no problem. Let's be a nerd then. Let's uh, let's dig in a bit. So let's 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 put uh, our
0: nerd hats on here.
1: (laughs) So let's say that um, we have many people that... Don't, they have no indication, they have no uh, bloating after a meal, they have no uh, inconsistency of their stools, and, but they've heard that probiotics are good to use. Do you believe that there is evidence uh, that using a well-made quality probiotic would be something that would be beneficial for them for their long-term health to prevent any problems?
0: Prevention is a different story because uh, um, that obviously depends, first of all, on predisposing risk factors and a number of other things. But then again, I'm going to direct you, Neil, back to the definition of probiotics.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Evidence is based on documented health benefits.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So the the good evidence that we have for probiotics in terms of prevention, um, obviously, neck is for me the the, the poster child. Um, we have. In children, just keeping with the pediatric theme, we have uh, prevention of antibiotic-associated diarrhea. Mm. Um, There's prevention for a couple of other things, ranging from urinary, or not urinary, well, urinary tract infections as well, but upper respiratory tract infections. Um, So there's a few elements that, for the preventative side of things, it's not so strange to use. And I mean, then if we go sort of to the the general person who just wants to be overall healthy and, and, and you know doesn't really have anything and they have no risk factors coming up on their radar and, and so on and so forth. I would say if you have the money to spend, it's not going to hurt you. Um, yeah. it's always good to boost the immune system in one way or another. But mm-hmm. then again, what is health? And I know it's a bit of a cop-out answer, but again, what is health and what are we trying to do? I, I'm, I'm not someone that should that suggests to take a supplement just because I've heard it's good for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone is an individual, their makeup, their biochemistry, their their physiology is all different. And health is sort of a a spectrum for everyone, I think. Mm -hmm. And if you're in tune with your body and you've taken a probiotic before, um, you know, hopefully a high uh, quality evidence-based one and it's helped you, or at least it has given you the um, idea that it's helped you and -hmm. you can afford it, yeah, take it again. I, I don't know that there's evidence to support each individual person. I mean, then we're really moving into the personalized medicine field, and I don't think we're there yet for probiotics.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But you know, if you're someone who has heard a great Google review and your friends swear by this one probiotic and you try it and you're thinking, uh, I didn't feel a difference, okay. We all know that with certain supplements and stuff that we only often feel the difference after we stop taking them. Mm-hmm. but you know, if you're able to play around with that, great, but only use the high quality ones because otherwise. It's it's just going to be a crapshoot then, literal
1: crapshoot. I think it's important that you said that, and I know you feel like it's a cop out answer, but you know this is a podcast for consumers. You know, I have lots of healthcare professionals that are listening, but consumers often hear the hype. They hear the people that are promoting this stuff, the editorial. They're hearing the grandeur around the whole thing versus what a responsible scientific answer actually is. It's well, you know, indication dose of a specific product and outcome, you know, and I think it's important that when we talk about this stuff, like we hear that kind of a thing that, yeah, okay, it's something that you can use and I'm not going to say no to, Um, make sure you're getting a good quality probiotic when you do do it, but it may not confer some tremendous health benefit for you individually, especially because you're just kind of randomly selecting strains Versus the, exactly. the pairing, you know, and,
2: exactly.
1: and that's literally my entire approach to supplements is that, you know, there are some that have evidence, you know, for people with, you know, we're, we're talking about probiotics. So if there's IBS or IBD or Crohn's or, or like you said, antibiotic um, uh, prevention to prevent diarrhea and, and all of this other stuff. So there's, there's stuff that's there, but then there's there's just the general You know, whatever. If you want to try it, go right ahead. You're an adult. Do what you need to do. And as long as you're getting a good probiotic, and that's that's where we help people is making sure that they can find that that good probiotic. So,
0: no, for sure. And I mean, at at the end of the day, what I always say is, probiotics are not the answer. They can be part of the solution Mm -hmm. if you have a problem. If you think that they fit into your um, healthy lifestyle, health journey, or I I don't really know what people are calling it these days. (laughs) Sorry, guys. (laughs) Um, Your your daily living uh, lifestyle thing. Then you wellness, know, go for what, it. Great. Yeah, whatever. Wellness. There
1: you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, whatever keyword they're coming up with today. Functional medicine is the new one, where oh, they, okay. they, yeah, they're taking like holistic care and and they're they're promoting it, which is very important. Uh, yes. But then they're tying in some of that old non-scientific stuff, and that's what stinks is that there's a lot of people that are like uh, validating functional medicine, and again, there's components of it that are excellent, but. It's also, I don't know, it, it would be like you then saying, yeah, then you have to get this one specific drink because I've heard the drink is good or, or use these crystals to help out with your, pro- you know, like there's like the pseudoscience that's involved with it. So that's the new thing these days in the, in the wellness space. Um, the idea of, you know, probiotics just being one picture. I know that we were talking about probiotics and that's where your expertise is there's also a trend around prebiotics. Do you have any opinions or thoughts on, on that topic?
0: Yeah, I think prebiotics are a very rapidly developing space. I, again, my expertise is not in prebiotics, but what I can say is that there's a, lot of, there's a lot of good new evidence emerging. I know that there's a new definition for prebiotics that just came out, mm-hmm. um, or a, a revised definition perhaps. But um, what they're showing is that there's a lot of really cool functional benefits in addition to just sort of technically being the food for bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's other potentially immunostimulatory um, aspects, bactericidal effects, and things mm-hmm. like that. So it is a, an exciting space, and, and in terms of prebiotics for supplements, the nice thing about them from a commercial perspective is they're a little bit more well defined. Uh, mm-hmm. They're not going to grow on you and, and, and change based on different starter cultures like right. bacteria will. Um, so in that sense, they're a little bit easier to quantify dosing and and quality and so on and so forth. And, and there's a lot of new uh, sources of prebiotics as well that are being identified. Uh, so potato starch is another one that's coming mm-hmm. out. Um, obviously, you have your inulin, your foss your Goss, and all of those types mm-hmm. of things. But um, people are looking also into plant polyphenols as having mm. potential prebiotic properties, and so on and so forth. So, it's a rapidly evolving space, and I think we'll see a lot more coming out of it.
1: Yeah, I was reading some data on urinary tract health uh, and women's health, and I saw that they were talking about the, the prebiotic effect of uh, like some of the polyphenols and even D-mannose, you know, sugar. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. um, but anyway, the one of the things I wanted to touch on before we move on from like quality discussions. Um, i've heard a rumor that some of the strains listed on some of the like garbage probiotics that are out there aren't actually intentionally put there, but they're cross contamination from their their manufacturing and then they list them there so that way they don't they don't like uh, have an adulterated product on their hand. Is there any truth to that
0: I, I wouldn't know to be honest because oh, really? I tend to be more on the scientific side of things right. than as Versus much- the
1: manufacturing side right
0: right right and I mean usually companies probiotic companies go through very very strict quality checks so Mm -hmm. you have to demonstrate um, what's in there who's in there why are they in there so to say right i i would be loath to call it a contamination i do know sometimes that some strains are more robust than others Mm -hmm. um, and so they might be slightly overdosed because you have to overdose a product slightly because you're going to have a little bit of die off over the shelf life of the product right yeah so you have to overdose to make sure in a high quality probiotic that you can achieve that same dose still at the end of the shelf life right so you might have a different slightly different proportion of of the strains than you um, had at the beginning or the end but I, I really couldn't comment much more on that because it's not it's not the area that I'm daily, um, involved with on a daily basis, Neil. Right. Sorry. Yeah,
1: supplement quality is my nerd nerd out thing. So, like, I, I look at all, all right. this stuff, and I've heard I've heard <laughs> the stories, but uh, the I didn't know if like it got back to the the science nerds, the data nerds. <laughs> so well, speaking- you know what?
0: It probably would come back to us because yeah. we tend to deal as well, in our consultant on the assays that are used in these quality checks, and I mean. Yeah. whole genome sequencing is is a quick way to do it sometimes because I
1: I, I feel like the companies that would call you wouldn't be the problem in the first place you know probably not right if they're smart enough to call and that's the thing one of the points that I wanted to talk about is around the regulation of supplements and, and probiotics in particular. And, you know, I, I know you believe that North America is like regulated, but I feel because of the failures of of our regulations where there's like glaring loopholes uh, in the process of voluntary process generally, that though there's regulations in place, it doesn't mean that the, the entire industry is producing quality products as we, we've kind of talked about, you know? So, right.
0: And let's let's not confuse two elements here. Sure. The North American, or let's just take the U.S. for now, the U.S. is a regulated space, Mm -hmm. but it's not policed. Yes. That's the difference. Yes. So there are uh, barriers to entering the marketplace of the product that you have to the minimum level of of evidence and and submission of dossiers and 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 you know showing that your product is what you say it is that it gets where it should get that it does what it should do you know as with every supplement or vitamin or um you know essential oil whatever you're marketing but that dossier once the product is sort of notified that it's we're good to go we meet all your compliance requirements they do their checklist you make sure your checklist is is good it's launched on the market, you know, it's not police. There's no way the FDA or or the various um, divisions within, you know, CBER, CIFSAM, et cetera, can police all the thousands and thousands of products that are on the market currently and also launched every year. I mean, this is, your tax dollars don't pay for that. Your government won't pay for that because there's no point. Right. It's just, it, it's not that it's a fruitless activity, but it would be so inefficient. It would be so, Challenging, and and it would just force companies, often probably underground a little bit more, and and into bad habits, perhaps. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a litigator. I'm not a, a regulatory expert. But um, it it would be very challenging to police, and you would need extreme amounts of manpower just to catch a couple of guys who are not doing it right but mm-hmm. you know, they often come to the surface whether it's from the marketing side you know with the FTC or on, on the quality side unfortunately sometimes consumers are the ones who tend to be the guinea pigs and and maybe there's uh you know a contamination of a product and somebody gets sick or hurt or worse deaths you know god forbid but um the system somehow seems to do that self, itself but it's not a policed system it's the Regulated system. So let's make that differentiation.
1: Sure. And so then, outside of the U.S., is it is it a uh, is it as big of a problem, or are we the the real problem when it comes to like the the mismatch between regulation and policing?
0: I think that's everywhere. Um, it, it's probably a fairly global issue in terms of being able to keep up with what is on your market mm-hmm. or being sold and, and exchanged and so on within the marketplace. I know in Canada, for example, the requirements are a little bit more strict. However, there can be a lot of piggybacking on a dossier mm-hmm. for a probiotic supplement going to market. So we have something called the Natural Health Product Directorate, and you have a probiotic monograph um, that's been established and defined by uh, the government, uh, or Health Canada anyways. And you know, if you, if you meet the appropriate um, requirements of that, then you get a, a Natural Health Product Number and so on and so forth. But the policing also doesn't happen on that level. It's just too cumbersome and it's too expensive. Yeah. Really. And if you look to other countries in Asia and Europe, et cetera, it's the same thing. But I mean, the, the systems are set up a little bit differently, but it's it's more, it tends to be more of a notification system. We've met your requirements. They do a quick check and then the product can go. So it's regulated, but it's not policed.
2: So
1: let's get away from the deep discussion about, the stuff that everybody has probably keeled over about and Let's talk about using probiotics in like women's health and oral care and stuff like that. So is it smart to buy probiotics that say for women on them, or is that just a marketing thing?
0: Again, I'm going to, I'm going to sound like a broken record here. <laughs> Sorry, dear listeners. Neil's going to kick me off the podcast in a second. No you got to go back to the definition. You right. got to go back to the definition. What are they studied for? What are the strains known for? Can you find evidence if you want to go search PubMed, go for it. But um, can you find evidence linking those strains specific with that strain designation back to some indication for women's health that you are hoping to take a product for?
1: Well, I mean, that's just the, the point of me saying that. It's like, what does women's health mean?
0: Yeah. <laughs> does well, men,
1: does correct, men's like, health involve watching sports and playing video games? You know what I'm saying? Like, what is women's health? Are, so are we talking about urinary tract health? Are we talking about reproductive tract health? Are we talking about um, hormonal? does, does a probiotic change a woman's hormone profile, you know? So let's talk about the specifics and let's talk about urinary tract health and like strains that are beneficial in that arena. And, you know, does every, does every woman, uh, need a preventative probiotic in this situation? Is this one where we have data or is this one where we're going to, we're going to only wait for treatment or if we have recurrent infections. So like, let's talk about the specifics around like just starting at urinary tract health, I guess.
0: Okay. Um, I think the best studied area is actually not urinary tract infections or health, but probably vaginal health. I I have a small confession to make. I was called the... Actually, wait, let's not say that.
2: (laughs) Oh, go ahead. Do it. Are you kidding me? You could could
1: totally say it. (laughs) Oh my God, it's going to be so awesome (laughs) if you say it. Now I'm interested.
0: Now you're interested. (laughs) All right. When I was in my PhD, because I was in my doctorate studies, I was working on urogenital health. And my flatmates, this is over in Europe, were so jealous that I could say the word vagina professionally with a straight <laughs> face because that's the niche I was working on, vaginal probiotics.
2: Right.
0: But I would actually say that there's more evidence, there's a bigger body of evidence within the vaginal space and there is in the, in the urinary tract. Mm-hmm. That being said, a lot of the strains overlap. So you have lactobacillus rhamnosus GR1, um, lactobacillus reuteri RC14. These are probably the two best studied strains in the women's health space just because they've been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Dr. Gregor Reed from uh, London, Ontario, Canada, he isolated both of them and he's been working with them for the last, I guess, almost three decades. Wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. a long time. And then you have um, different other strains, for example, um, lactobacillus rhamnosus. Uh, what is it? LCR35. Mm-hmm, um, you I've have heard of that one. You yeah. on the block, um, you know, lactobacillus rhamnosus hn 001, I think, you have a, a couple of lactobacillus crispatus strains, lbv 888 that type of thing. So there's, there's quite a few different strains um, that you can think about that have some evidence, not only in uh, vaginal health, and what I mean more specifically there would be bacterial vaginosis. Some have some evidence in aerobic vaginitis, depending on whether you believe that's actually a condition or not that's open for debate. Um, And also um, candidiasis, vaginal, vulval vaginal candidiasis or vaginal candidiasis. So that's sort of more within the vaginal tract or vaginal element. And then within um, the urinary side of things, really, it's mostly on prevention or treatment of urinary tract infections. I know there's some emerging evidence now a little bit more on urinary urgency, Mm. but this is not just limited to women. It's also to men Mm -hmm. and children, but and that's more of an emerging area. And then, of course, because the urinary tract is connected to the kidneys and, and you know further up within the systemic organs, they're looking into some areas with respect to kidney stones and, and oxalate de- degradation and stuff like that. So there's some, there's some interesting areas coming out that perhaps overlap a little bit with men and women's health. But one of the things I always say, and I will keep always saying this, is if you have um, challenges within your urogenital area, you know, you also have to take a look at a number of other factors. Yes. Are you a smoker. Um, are you having unprotected sex? Are you changing partners a lot? Um, you know, are you douching? Are you, God forbid, bleaching your vagina and all these other.
1: Bleaching your vagina.
0: What? Oh, don't, don't even get me started on that. But are you using washes? Do you put soap inside? These are all things that are absolutely awful. The vagina is a self cleansing organ. Let it do its thing. Just leave it alone. <laughs>
1: I leave my vagina alone as much as possible. It just stays, it stays on the shelf and that's it. The <laughs> postmenopausal women who are lacking hormones because now nobody uses hormones due to the Women's Health Initiative, which another pod- podcast guest told me is inaccurate anyway, but they may have vaginal dryness and irritation. Would a probiotic be uh, something that they should be using to keep the, the environment healthy?
0: The thing with menopause, uh, depending on whether it's earlier or later, and if there are other causes, so to say, I mean, for example, uh, uh, cancers or or, or medications and so on. The thing with menopause is that the vaginal epithelium tends to thin out and you have a reduction of the number of lactobacilli and an increased diversity of the different other types of organisms that are in the vagina. So that's a case where, the, the small body of evidence that we have suggests that probiotics can be beneficial. And there are a couple of studies, that I think most of them were done with the, uh, the two strains I mentioned at the beginning, the lactobacillus rhamnosus GR1 and the lactobacillus, uh, what did I say, Reuteroy RC14. So those mm-hmm. are the the Dr. Gregor Reed strains. I mm-hmm. think most of the evidence that I'm aware of anyways has been done with those, and it, it seems to be potentially beneficial in certain subsets of the population. So There could be definitely some um, scientific support for taking a probiotic, you know, whether that is vaginal or oral in terms of the right of administration. That's another thing. But there's also definitely some emerging evidence coming out with respect to hormones. So one of the areas that's grossly neglected, I've heard from my endocrinologist friends, is this um, neurological endocrine immune axis. And Bacteria seem to affect a lot of those areas, whether independently or simultaneously, um, at least in basic research studies. And I'm not speaking just in animal studies as well or in vitro. I'm also talking in, in vivo and in human studies. So bacteria produce a lot of um, neurotransmitters, acetylcholine. People always talk about uh, you know serotonin and, and stuff like that with respect to the gut brain access. But Let's get a bit further. Bacteria are known to sequester cholesterol, which is a precursor for a lot of the steroid hormones. Um, they're known to um, even produce and conjugate certain hormones um, in the body. They are known immune modulators, not stimulators. Modulators. So maybe there is some sort of role in the future. We don't have concrete evidence for that yet. But I mean, if we look at administration of probiotics in cases where patients have some one of those three areas sort of that's struggling a little bit whether it's a a breast cancer patient or um, you know some woman who's on some sort of uh, uh, hardcore antibiotics that have really damaged their epithelium and that's causing local inflammation and and an immune response you know there, there is some evidence to suggest that but you know we're still waiting for those landmark studies you know, with sufficient number of patients and, and a sufficient indication and so on and so forth. But it's a, it's a fairly exciting area. And another area just to round off that thought yeah, that's coming up is also, you mentioned it reproduction mm-hmm. and I'm not just talking, you know, prevention of preterm birth, which is sort of still a little bit up in the air, even though I'm, I will be eternally optimistic, but it's still a little bit up in the air. Mm-hmm. I'm not just talking support during pregnancy, whether it's for against constipation or, you know, ensuring that uh, hopefully your baby has a reduced risk of atopic dermatitis later on, I'm also talking fertility. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's, there's work that's being done in some uh, clinics, actually all over the world, um, different parts of the world, I shouldn't say. It's not that everybody in the world is working on this, but um, there's some work being done. I'll just give a quick example that shows, for example, in, I, in um, oof, I'm very eloquent right now. There's... <laughs> There's work being done in different clinics around the world that shows, for instance, if a woman is undergoing in vitro fertilization, if the needle that is uh, injecting the egg with sperm is coated with a certain lactobacillus crispatus strain, I don't recall it off the top of my head right now, Mm -hmm. that that has a much higher chance of successful fertilization, implantation, and a reduced risk of spontaneous abortion.
1: It's almost like when they had that aha moment about uh, washing their hands in between childbirth, right? Uh, you, know, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, it's like, it's like, of course if we have a particular strain that this will, you know, be more beneficial. That is right. uh, very, very interesting.
0: And even on the other side though, just for, for men, cause I mean, I, I know I'm an expert in women's health, but I mean, the men are half of the equation most of the time. You uh, know.
1: I would give, not give them that much credit.
0: <laughs> okay so let's take 20
2: minutes at the time
0: <laughs> or less depending on how, how it works um certain probiotic strains have been shown to enhance sperm motility and reduce breakage of dna um in men if they take an oral probiotic supplement so i mean there's there's evidence for both sides on the fertilization equation and mm. not that this is hardcore let's do it everybody adopt you know whoever yeah. wants a kid let's do it that way but you know it, it's it's a it's an encouraging thought that we have evolved with our microbes synergistically and that we're sort of rediscovering that relationship as much as the germaphobes are really not liking this. Yeah. Kind of here to stay.
1: Well, I I think, you know, we had a a microbiome expert on the podcast a couple weeks back and the idea that, you know, our environments are so um, sterilized almost or like completely different than what they're used to. Somebody who lives in the city, uh, somebody who travels a lot and just like the, the multitude of uh, changes that we've done with technology to our, our exposure to these, Uh, bugs and us going, going, oh, wait, we shouldn't have done that, you know, a very human response, right? Um, Right. (laughs) Before we leave, I want to just talk about oral health real quick. Um, Mm -hmm. What kinds of things can people do from an oral health probiotic or should they know about the oral health probiotic connection? Because a lot of people would think, oh, I'm using a probiotic and I'm swallowing it. What does that have to do with the bacteria in my mouth?
0: Yeah, big question. Actually, I'm happy you asked that because the oral cavity is one of the best studied hmm. microbiome and probiotic potential application areas in the body. A lot of people don't realize this because all the hype are on the gut, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, because the gut's pretty exciting. Let's face it. However, the oral cavity is the beginning of the gut. Firstly, mm-hmm. secondly, it's easy to access. Everybody's got a mouth. You know, mm-hmm. some people hate the dentist, so they want to look for alternatives and so on. But. Um, Areas that probiotics have been shown to be quite successful, actually, are in periodontitis, mm. uh, prevention or reduction of risk of cavities or dental caries and things like that. Um, but the key with the oral cavity, as with most other things as well, is not probiotics, but it's it seems to be more on the, the debridement of um, you know, your plaque and mechanical brushing and good diet. So that seems to be the elements that are essential for good oral health. However, probiotics can be part of the solution. As I said before, for periodontitis, there's good evidence there. And also for dental caries, I think as well, there have been some studies on, um, halitosis, so bad breath, Mm -hmm. Um, because obviously bacteria, they, they love to grow, and some of them produce really stinky compounds and stuff like that. So, you know, there's there's all sorts of different products that are available, evidence-based products, um, whether it's chewing gums, washes, lozenges, things like that. But um, it, it's also an area that could perhaps have some more attention given to it um, in terms of what's going on there. But, um, yeah, there's, it, it's it's just an exciting time to be in the science. There's There's so much going on. It's great.
1: Right. And then it's a great opportunity for me to sit here and spout out about how these products aren't meeting our scientific expectations too. So it's it's really good for my blood pressure.
0: <laughs> oh, excellent. And your cortisol levels, I imagine.
1: <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Buddhist now, so I'm trying to be one with the now. Um, so breathing. <laughs> So Jessica, Thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm just wondering, do you have any like thoughts to leave everybody with? You know, we're talking to consumers, uh, you know, we're trying to bridge this connection between the uh, unpoliced environment and the, the scientific potential here. So, you know, are there, you know, I know you work for IPA and, and, and you're, you're a consultant for them and, and you're like, the, you're the, the boss lady, right? I mean, come on, let's be honest here. Aren't you, aren't you the uh-huh. head on show around the science over there?
0: God, no, God, no. <laughs> they hired me because I can put two brain cells together in a nice way, create some electricity between those two. But there's a lot, there's so many better scientists than I am there. And I'm grateful because I'm, I'm learning a lot from them. But that being said. Um,
1: yeah, so there's any, any thoughts that we can leave people with and like help them uh, bridge this
0: gap? Absolutely. I think that the number one message would be just to challenge the information you're getting. We live in such an information dense society right now. And, you know, we look to the experts for their opinions, but who are the experts and what are they saying and how can we vet them? And then, oh, we have to look to another expert to verify what that expert's saying, et cetera. <laughs> and data is not data. It's not data. It, you know, I left academic science partially because I was a little bit disenchanted that data could be so easily manipulated.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that frustrated me. Perhaps I'm a bit naive and a bit of an idealist, but challenge the information that you're getting. Don't be complacent because it's very easy to circumvent the system sometimes. And you're the one who's going to get hurt, unfortunately. Um, and I know that puts an added burden on consumers, but I feel like we're in an age where we have a lot of information, people data dump on us routinely. So we're just trying to process everything. And, you know, don't be paralyzed by the analysis. Don't, don't be intimidated. If I can do a PhD, if I can go off and study this stuff, anybody else can do it too. Right. And you don't need a PhD to understand what's going on around you. You just need some common sense and logic. And that, my God, is a goddamn superpower these days.
1: (laughs) Well, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am definitely having you back. And I'm going to be emailing you a bunch of questions. So now you got a little best friend in Neil. So uh, if you have any pharmacy, boring pharmacy questions, you can ask me, of course. But um, thank you again for coming on. And I hope to talk to you again soon.
0: Thank you so much, Neil, for the opportunity. Apologies to the listeners if I was incoherent and a bit of nerdy, but uh, <laughs> it was a pleasure to be on, and I, I hope uh, I hope we'll do this again soon.
1: Thanks, Dr. Tahar, for all that great information. So she's expecting. Well, at least she was expecting at the time of me recording this. I should kind of preface that she won't be like continuously expecting to have a child. That would be painful i'm sure so good luck to her introducing a new little baby bubba into the world here it just reminds me you know i've got lots of kids lots of cousins and such so our extended family has what's called the baby goat situation and i I don't know jessica if you have kids or not but just be ready for this one basically babies are like roombas anyway You know, they get into those hard to reach places and they pick up stuff and it ends up in their mouth. So in our family, it skips around a bit, but there are babies, cousins that basically are baby goats. Uh, They just eat whatever. It started with cousin Alexandra. Uh, She was our first baby goat and then it moved to my daughter, Aria. She she chewed on socks and I joke she's going to be stepping up to aluminum cans pretty soon. And now my niece, Selena, is the baby goat of the family. So Jessica, if you haven't been down this road before, good luck with that baby. I suggest fencing off an area, perhaps a shot collar. I don't know, whatever. I don't know if they do that for kids. And maybe, just maybe, you'll get lucky and you'll have yourself a little baby goat too. So let's do this question and answer session for the first time this year. (laughs) Amanda from Chicago, where weed now is legal, yippee dippy doo Uh, She wrote to me about a certain online doctor's $60-plus prebiotic with numerous questions. So I figured it's a great time to talk about it since we've mentioned it on the episode and it's a prebiotic probiotic day for me. So let's just do this whole thing. So first and foremost, what's a prebiotic? Prebiotic as Dr. Terhar and I discussed, it's microbiome food. So it's a dumb name. Prebiotics is a dumb name. It would be better if it was called probiotic miracle grow or probiotic food. That makes more sense, but whatever. I'm not in charge of naming things. They're the sugars and compounds we can or don't break down but are ripe for the picking for the microbiome, the bacteria, and the bugs that live inside of us. They love to eat that stuff. They've evolved to eat that stuff, and that's their energy source. So they'll grow and thrive if our fiber supply, if our prebiotic supply is plentiful. So again, prebiotics and probiotics are two separate things. Probiotics are the organisms, and prebiotics are the food. Prebiotics are coming typically from fruits and vegetables, the complex carbs, and as I said, fiber-rich foods that we eat some prebiotics have different risks of side effects. So bugs will eat these foods and then they fart. Basically they produce gas and it'll be more gas or less gas, depending on the type of prebiotic and the type of bacteria. And, that farting might accumulate in you as bloating and gas as well. The other thing is if you the wrong bacteria get the right food, they'll grow and thrive and they'll start secreting all their grossness everywhere. And then that can lead to GI irritation and pain. So ensuring that we have a proper prebiotic supply is important to a healthy microbiome. Okay, Prebiotic supplements, though, are generally a big racket. Think about what prebiotics are. They're fibers. Fiber supplements are cheap okay? And what prebiotics do is they take the inexpensive raw materials like banana powder, which technically is a prebiotic, right? It's rich in in inulin and stuff like that. And they mix them with small amounts of the more costly and potentially better prebiotics. And you look at that ingredient list and you're like, okay, so there's banana powder, but then there's all these other things that I was told to look for in a prebiotic. And it's, it's a list that's carefully curated to make you think that that product is special. So we need to pay attention to not just what ingredients, but how much, and is it enough to actually have an impact on my body? So most of the products that are out there, especially these $60 plus ones are just glorified fiber supplements. Now that can make people feel better. People will take these things and go, wow, I I feel really great because most of us get about 15 grams or 50% of our dietary fiber needs. So just by supplementing the fiber alone can make you feel better, not necessarily the prebiotic functions of the fiber supplement. And all of that deception technically isn't a problem if the price is reflective of the material used and not the marketing, right? So paying more than 20 bucks a month for a banana supplement seems pretty legitimate to me, but... More than that, that's just way too much. We have an article on this at WoodstockVitamins.com that goes over prebiotics in more detail, and soon we'll have a prebiotic expert actually on the podcast, and that should be coming like mid-2019, which is great. But for now, if you have a specific prebiotic question, because I'm not going to bash specifics about products on the air, I don't have enough money for lawyers to do that. Just give me a shout-out at podcast at WoodstockVitamins.com. We may find in all of that discussion that a prebiotic is not really the linchpin here. There may be other lifestyle modifications that we can do to make your gut healthier without even broaching the subject of a prebiotic supplement. And that's an important holistic manner of managing your gut health. So that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Dr. Jessica Terhar for coming on and discussing probiotics. If you want to reach out to her, her email is jessica at tarharconsulting.com. That's Jessica, like, jessica the song right almond brothers right no no okay uh at terhar consulting T-E-R-H-A-A-R hyphen consulting.com thank you very much make sure you subscribe review and tell a friend about all the fun that we're having over here and until next time keep listening keep learning and be well